Greetings, everyone, and a warm welcome to you in Intersections. Our aspiration is to dissolve the boundaries between life and work, between in and out, between East and West, between science and spirituality, profit and purpose. Dissolve all those traditional boundaries that may have limited us from exploring our full potential. Today, we have with us a return visitor in Brad Tulberg, who has um, already come to talk about a really critical topic around tempering and mastering your passion. And today we will have him talk about his latest work, his latest passion, which is on groundedness. Let me just give you a little bit of a quick intro and refresh on Brad, and then we will invite him onto our show. He is a peak performance coach, as well as a best-selling author already. He works with um, you know, executives and entrepreneurs, even physicians and athletes on mental skills and overall well-being, has led uh, numerous workshops for leading organizations such as NASA and the Bank of America. He writes uh, a very popular Do It Better column for Outside Magazine. And amongst his past books, you know, have been these two major contributions, The Passion Paradox, which we spoke about with Brad last time. If you haven't seen that episode of Intersections, I highly recommend it. There are some really key insights there about, you know, about this topic of the pursuit of purpose, you know, in our lives, as well as this book on peak performance, co-authored in, in both cases with Steve Magnus. He's created the growth equation uh, with, with Steve as well. It's an online platform dedicated to, you know, creating kind of like a more fulfilling and sustained kind of success, the art and the science of that. The practice of groundedness, which is the conversation that we're going to have with Brad today, you know, has just been released. Uh, and it's getting excellent reviews from some of the you know leading you know thought leaders and uh, practitioners of the art and craft of, of uh, life and leadership out there. So I am delighted to bring into our midst Brad Stuhlberg. And there you are, Brad. Welcome. It's great to be back. It is our pleasure and joy to have you. Thank you for making the time in what I am sure is a busy, intense, and you know, hopefully a very rewarding moment for you. Yeah, definitely. Launching a book is, it's like running a mile as fast as you can in a race, only to find yourself on the start line of a 5K and then a half marathon and then a marathon. So it's wonderful opportunities to practice what I preach. Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm intrigued about that metaphor. Let's unpack it a little bit more for me and the audience. So there's that sprint. I get that because like things get really busy and intense and crazy for a bit. And then can you describe like how you have it turning into a 5K and then a marathon? Yeah. So I learned this with my first book. You feel like launch day or the couple days, the first two or three days are just so busy and full of various activities that you want to do to help the world recognize that your book has finally arrived and ultimately to get the book in the hands of readers to try to get publicity. And if you're not careful, and I learned this the hard way, you can go full tilt in those three days. And then on day four, you're completely exhausted. But day five, six, and seven are just as important in many ways as day one, two, and day three. And at the end of the first week, you can feel completely spent. But the first month is also real important, as is the first year. And I think that while this is definitely true of creative projects, where when they're first released, you really want to just push, 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 push hard to share your work, it is so important to take a long view and realize that any successful work is not going to be made in a day, a week, a month. It's actually going to be made over shepherding it out into the world for years. And I think that this metaphor applies far beyond book publishing or even just any creative project to starting a company, being engaged in an intimate relationship, having a child, building a home, 
we tend to get really excited and put forth so much energy very early on. But if we're not careful with how we pace, it can leave us feeling quite empty and burnt out prematurely. Very thought-provoking. Very thought-provoking. Thank you for giving us a glimpse also into the, um, the journey of, a, of, of an author. I'm intrigued about you know, what you just said in the light of some of my own experiences. One of the things I've realized as a teacher, as a professor, is um, the fact that we get this repeat experience. The real life uh, plays out again and again as you teach the same class. And um, what, I, what I found is that for those classes for which I have deep convictions and passion, it is very stimulating to actually go through those repeat experiences because I'm actually drawing from something deep within and, and I'm seeing it play out in very unique ways every time you render it, you know, in, in the world. But for those things which were, you know, a little bit more done for like professional obligations or commitment, but without necessarily the deep passion, sometimes at some point you just get worn out by having to just like play the reel out again and again. Can you weigh in on that a little bit as you go through, you know, a series of uh, conversations with audiences on this, how much that depth of connection is like an energy driver? It's such an energy driver. And it's so important for me to remember the actual contents of what's in the book and why I wrote the book and how I feel about those things. And the more that I can do that, the more I'm able to draw from that well of energy. Even so, for my own temperament and my own being, it is very important to remember that just because you feel really good at mile one of a marathon and you want to run six minute pace, that doesn't mean it's going to set you up for success at mile 24 or mile 25. So I think that there is a drawing into that well of energy and fuel, but also making sure that you're not neglecting things like sleep and physical movement and nutrition and time with friends and family, because that's all the stuff that is easy to get thrown out the window when you're launching a book or any big project for that matter. And while you can get by doing that for a few days, it's not a sustainable path for the long haul. I want to come back to how life's been feeding you since we last met uh, in just a moment. But uh, this thing itself has sparked so much. I'm reminded of this aspect of Gandhi's approach to pursuing the civil disobedience, nonviolent disobedience movement and like the struggle for freedom in India. You know, as I've been researching some of these ideas for a book that I've been working on. And one of the things I stumbled into there, Brad, I don't know if you're aware of this, is that he actually came up with a method that was called struggle truce struggle. And the idea was that you push forward on a certain program for about a year or two years, but then you actually call it off. And you go into this period of like rest and rejuvenation for the people because he recognized that, look, this is hard work. <laughs> and to bring out the best in yourself, which is what he wanted people to do to withhold that impulse to have to like fight back. He had to give them the time for rest and rejuvenation. Yeah, this is a big theme in the practice of groundedness, and particularly the chapter on being patient to get there faster. And what might seem inefficient in the short term is almost always going to be very efficient in the long term. So stepping away for rest and recovery, going slow, consulting other colleagues and experts in the moment, that feels wholly inefficient because it is slowing you down. But when you look back after a month, a half a year, a year, or a decade, it's the fact that you had the self-discipline and the ability to show restraint and to slow down, to be inefficient now, that is what makes you hyper-efficient later. And I think that this culture is so obsessed with moving fast and breaking things and different hacks and strategies to optimize as fast as possible that we've kind of forgot about the art of practicing patience. Because 
I have come across few, if any, really meaningful endeavors that were truly overnight breakthroughs. And even so many things that we think are overnight breakthroughs, because that's the story that's told, they tend to have years and years of work behind them. So an example that I use in the book is the story of Charles Darwin in the theory of evolution. When we look back, most people say that that was a scientific breakthrough. And no doubt it was. But Darwin worked on his theory of evolution for 20 years before he published it. So from the moment that he had the idea on his voyage in the Galapagos to publishing on natural selection, it was 20 years of tinkering and missteps and consulting with other researchers and other friends and revising. So, so many of the things that we think are overnight breakthroughs are actually these very long processes. And I think it's important that we celebrate that long process for ourselves, our colleagues, our communities, because we don't want to send a false message that the way to success is to move fast. Because I argue that 99.9% of the time, the way to success is to move slow. I was very struck in that chapter of your book. Um, by the way, folks, uh, you know, we're talking about the practice of groundedness, Brad's latest release. Brad, is it right now released in the, since we have a global audience, I mean, is this released uh, more in North America or, uh, or worldwide? So I believe that it is worldwide through online distributors, particularly Amazon. I'm not sure if the shipping costs are going to be higher coming from the U.S. And then I know that rights have been sold in various areas of the world. I don't know when those will publish in the local languages. Okay, thank you. So in this book, you know, you mentioned six principles of groundedness. And one of them is the one that you're just talking about right now. Be patient and then you'll get there faster. And um, there's this piece in the chapter, which was very eye-opening. And uh, for those of us who've got a little bit more salt than pepper in the hair, uh, you know, this might be actually an encouraging data point you shared, which is uh, that, that Zuckerberg idea that like the smartest people in the room are the ones in their 20s. Actually, there's data to suggest that that's, uh, that's not right. Can, can you talk about that? Sure. So researchers from MIT and Northwestern, they partnered to try to look at the age of successful entrepreneurs. And they judge success by company revenue income and if a company IPO'd, its value and success at IPO. And what they found really surprised them because as you alluded to, the myth is that in startup culture, you wanna be young and even a little bit reckless. What these researchers found is just that, that is a complete myth. The average age of a successful founder is 45 years old. And they speculate that this is the case, and I wholeheartedly agree, because as important as cognitive flexibility and mental speed and acute problem solving, which are capacities that tend to peak younger, often in our mid to late 20s, those things are important, but they have to be balanced with wisdom. And there is no fast track to wisdom. The only way to get wisdom is to learn, experience, fail, and grow. So you can almost think about these two curves. You've got a wisdom curve that goes up as you age, and then you've got, we'll call it a raw talent or skills curve that gradually goes down as you age. And you're most successful when those two things cross. Now, different pursuits have different slopes of those curves, but for starting a business, the researchers found that it happens to be in midlife when those two things cross. This is also very, very much true in many of the arts and in intellect. Most researchers win their Nobel Prizes in mid or late life. So this notion that youth is wasted on the young is not always true. Some of that is learning when you're young so that you can then break through later. 
you know, very exciting to hear for, for all of us who are continuing to feel very invested in the rest of the decades of our life, uh, rather than look back and feel like our peak is behind us. And I think um, that it is, it's such a change in just language. So what I call groundedness, I think is very similar to what you talk about as mastery. These things are paths that you are on for a very long time. So you zoom out, like the quarterly report or the annual report, those are mere data points or checkpoints on this longer path. And if you can take that view, not only do you feel much better because it takes a load of pressure off, but you and your organization over the long haul will perform better. Now, I realize both individually and organizationally, this is swimming upstream because the entire society runs on the quarterly cycle in the business world. In the personal world, we celebrate birthdays. We think we get to certain life stages and we should have accomplished these various things. But what not just my own hypothesis, what the research very clearly shows is that progress is nonlinear. And just because you've been working at something and you haven't yet seen the result doesn't mean that that breakthrough isn't a year, two years, three years off. Yeah. You cite um, Steve Jobs' age when uh, he and Apple launched their most path-breaking product, the iPhone. And uh, I also hadn't really done that math, but he was in his early 50s. He was 51, which is the same age that Darwin was when he published his theory of natural selection. And another example that I give is the writer Ta-Nehisi Coates, who certainly came onto the scene in 2014, 2015, and seemed just like a sensation over breakthrough. Part of it is he has a very young energy and affect. But Tanahasi Coates was 39 years old when he quote unquote broke through. And from age 22 to 39, he was living on unemployment checks because he was just trying everything he could to make it as a writer. And in conventional terms, he was failing. But what Coates would say is that I was actually gaining the experience and the wisdom to be able to break through later on. So there are all these stories that we look at these people and we say, wow, Steve Jobs or Darwin or Ta-Nehisi Coates, they just break on the scene. But that's only because that's what we're told and that's what we see. Another metaphor that I love for this that I use in the book is you can think about most big endeavors in life is chipping away or pounding at a big rock. And it might take 100 pounds before the rock breaks. And during those first 99 pounds, you don't see anything. But that doesn't mean that they're not beneficial. Without them, the rock wouldn't break. So visible progress is not always the best arbiter of success. Yeah, very powerful. I'm also hearing in that the important lesson of uh, seeing life's projects, not just on the basis of the um, results they generate, but also on the basis of the learnings they generate. Yes. And, um, and then I'm hearing in what you're saying, the idea that um, most of our life's most special projects and work and outputs are not as much maybe just like skin deep, they have layers and layers of uh, structure and organization and thinking and insight behind them. And that's what those years of um, evolution and Darwin's thinking you know, that led him to have 20 years from capturing the raw data to actually writing his uh, theory must have done. Isn't to throw progress, measurable progress or conventional success completely out. Like you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. What I'm arguing for is a correction where the sole focus or even the majority focus isn't on the shorter term progress markers or notions of conventional success, but rather on the path to achieve those things. And I argue, and the data supports this, that the great paradox is the byproduct of less of a focus on measurable result and measurable success is 
measurable results in success. So I am a big fan of metaphors because as a writer, I think they're so powerful. Another way to think about this Hitindra is as follows. There are two paths to the peak of a mountain and this mountain can be real. It can be metaphorical. One path, the climber the entire way is obsessing about the peak, is worried that they might not make it to the peak, cannot stop thinking about what it will mean when they do make it to the peak. The other route, the climber wants to get to the peak, but is really enjoying each step of the journey. They're having fun camping. They're enjoying the views, the life on the side of the mountain. Both climbers make it to the peak. So they both attain the same success, but the texture of their journey, the path looks very different. And it's the climber that was able to be where they were along the way that is happier, more fulfilled, and less likely to burn out. Because if every mountain you climb, you are just obsessing about getting on the peak, you will not last long as a climber because the stress that that puts on your system is unsustainable. Beautiful. I want to go more into groundedness, but uh, let's take a small digression. Since we last connected, which was uh, about seven months ago or so, besides the launch of the book, what else have you been up to? Give us a little bit of a window into the life of Brad. So I'd say that the, the two biggest things in the last seven months, uh, we got a puppy who's now uh, 10 months, so barely still a puppy, <laughs> and who's a big old German shepherd. And it's been absolutely wonderful. It's been both better than I thought and harder than I thought. And then the second thing is I think what so many people around the world are experiencing, which is just managing through COVID-19. Uh, well, my family has been very fortunate that no one has gotten sick. No one has lost their income. It has still been a source of distress and challenge. We have a young child and deciding, send him to school, pull him from school. Is this just a cold or could this turn into COVID? Not being able to go out in the world and do lots of things and connect with lots of people in ways that we're accustomed to, it has been very hard. So on the one hand, I'm doing what I can with my wife, my son to keep perspective and be very grateful for where we are. On the other hand, I'm also giving myself and us permission, and I hope that they give themselves permission to feel like crap on some days and to realize that there are going to be more arguments in the kitchen uh, because we're going through a time that we haven't been through. The last time there was a global pandemic met with some social unrest or discomfort was 1918. So it's been a while. And I think that it is, um, it's about being able to hold both those things at once. So maintaining perspective and being grateful, but also allowing yourself to realize that you too may be going through acute challenges. Challenges are different. It's not that one of us is hospitalized or on a ventilator, but it's not to discredit the, the kind of cloud of stress that, that COVID-19 has, has put forth. And the thing that I'm trying to practice, which is extremely hard to do, is to really focus on what is in front of my face. Because if I can come to the present moment, not get from to reach out my arm, not really focus too much on what's happening beyond an arm's length, thankfully, things are pretty good. It is when I can, like everyone else, get sucked into the news coverage, and I think they call it doom scrolling these days or doom swirling. It's been a challenge for sure. Yeah. No, thank you for being so thoughtful and open about, uh, about the journey, which I'm sure so many, you know, in the audience and, and me myself can relate to, you know, can, can value and appreciate, you know, the, the candor with which you're, in a sense, speaking to many people's lives, uh, not just your own. And I'm also noticing in, in doing so, you're in some ways uh, bringing to life some of the very principles of groundedness that you've spoken about in the book, including being really honest about your feelings. And, and even when they take you to a vulnerable place, you know, that's a starting point towards, um, 
emotional mastery. So, so thank you for doing that for us. Um, coming back then to the quest that you're on, you know, with this book, by the way, congratulations about the German Shepherd as well. I, um, I was speaking when you were sharing his name, so I missed that. Could you repeat his name? Yeah, his name is Ananda. A- Ananda. Oh, really? Is that like the Sanskrit uh, Ananda? Yeah. So Ananda in Buddhism was the Buddha's loyal attendant in one of his finest disciples. And it also means joy and bliss in Sanskrit. Yeah, it's beautiful. There's actually a parable um, to connect it back to the book. And I I promise audience, this wasn't a setup. There's a beautiful parable in the chapter on building deep community, where um, this is from the Pali Canon, which is the oldest recorded Buddhist text that we have. And Ananda, the Buddha's disciple, goes to Ananda and says, Buddha, Buddha, blessed one, blessed one. I've heard that friendship is 50% of the spiritual path. Is this true, blessed one? And the Buddha says, there's lots of repetition in the, in the Pali Canon. The Buddha says, no, Ananda, no, it is not true, Ananda. It is not true that friendship is 50% of the spiritual path. So Ananda says, blessed one, blessed one, what then is true? And the Buddha says, Ananda, friendship is the whole of the spiritual path. It is 100% of the spiritual path. And I just think, A, that's true. B, it's such a beautiful passage. And C, how could I not name my dog Ananda? You mentioned it's two sources. One is the inspiration from Buddha and, uh, and the other was the Sanskrit um, definition of the word. I have to say that uh, this has been my, my greatest intrigue you know, all through my life from a very young age. What is joy? What are the ultimate limits of joy? How does one get to that state where one can consistently live in that way and offer it to the world at large. So every time I hear anything to do with joy, bliss, Ananda, it, uh, it stirs me you know, deeply from inside. So that's beautiful. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing. So uh, coming back to your book, let me ask you this. What have, you know, you, you've just been citing some of these in the uh, studies you've done of uh, storied lives like the Darwins and, and the Steve Jobs and beyond, and then the uh, citations that you're giving right now of some of these um, you know, timeless wisdom of the ages like Buddha. What have you found to be the most fruitful sources of wisdom that have informed your work? So my approach is to look for truth with a capital T. And what I mean by that are I want to uncover principles and practices that are applicable to lots of people in lots of different situations. So to do that, I take a very broad view. So I look at, I think of anything that I write about, any practice or principle in my book, I test against a metaphorical three-legged stool. The first leg is science and empirical research. So what is the theory behind a practice? Has it been tested in a controlled setting? Are there meta-analyses? Have there been cohort studies? Peer review science. The second stool is ancient wisdom. So what do the ancient wisdom traditions have to say about this concept or this topic or this practice? Is it something that's been spoken about and written about in many ancient wisdom traditions in different parts of the world at different times? Has it survived millennia of thinking? And the third stool is daily practice. So when I go out and I report and I talk to individuals that are sustainably performing at their potential, feeling fulfilled, feeling good and well along the way, are they practicing these things? So it can't just exist in the ancient text or in the ivory tower of academia. It actually has to work when the rubber meets the road. And if a principle has all three of those things behind it, that is when I can be confident that this is something that is true with a capital T. 
If it has two, the stool is a little bit shaky. It might be true. It might be something to test in my own life, to write an article or an essay about, but it doesn't make it into a book. And if a principal only has one leg of the stool, well, then you can't stand on that stool. Um, so it's really around pattern recognition and looking for support, again, in the hard sciences, in ancient wisdom traditions, and then also daily practice where the rubber meets the road. No, I think it's a beautiful framework, beautiful framework. You know, it relates a little bit to the paths that I've been taking in my teaching at Columbia and Mentor and, you know, the book I'm working on as well. Quite similar. I think the only thing I would add uh, is just your own personal lived journey, right? And uh, how that also informs... Uh, and reinforces and then maybe further uh, nuances, right? The, the ideas and thoughts you're borrowing from like the outer world. Yeah, I mean, how can it not? I think that's really, really wise of you to, to make explicit because you're right. Anytime anyone, not just a writer, picks up a study or reads a book or has a conversation with someone or figures out a spiritual practice, it is always the union of you and it. And particularly in creative pursuits, like that is the definition of creativity. It is how your own unique experience, self, or whatever you want to call it, ground, how that then relates to something external and whatever comes out of that union is new. So yeah, I think that's a really poignant remark. Yeah. Brad, I'm interested in your thoughts about science. You know, it's been a uh, blossoming arena in the study of human nature over the last uh, 20 years in particular, as, as you know, you know, the um, field has moved from purely the dark states of the human mind more to the bright, you know, aspirational enlightenment oriented states from positive psychology to all forms of therapy and beyond. That said, you know, I'm, I'm sure you're also stumbling into some of this in the news and in your conversations with, um, with some of the eminent scientists out there, you know, the replication crisis and, um, uh, the fact that um, perhaps, um, you know, some of um, our dear friends in that discipline, perhaps in their own well-intentioned way, or in some cases, even their motivations are being called into question. And it's going back all the way to the Stanford prison experiments and the Milgram, um, you know, yeah. experiments at Yale to more modern day kind of ideas around unconscious bias and priming and uh, yeah, there's just so many of these um, recently popularized scientific platforms are also getting a little bit challenged as to whether they were based on too thin a data set or something that is not fully replicable, causing us a little bit of a pause. So it's something that I'm still kind of thinking through in the questions about the rigor with which, um, you know, I seek to research and tap into, you know, what's out there, et cetera. And I'm curious, you know, where you, where you land on that. So. So where I land, I, that is a big part of why I have this three-legged stool. I am not very confident in any single study because it's just that, a single study. I think when you narrow in on just science, I think this is the power of trying to find a meta-analysis or plural meta-analyses, which are studies of studies. And I also think in the social sciences, oftentimes, I think mostly unconsciously, sometimes perhaps with motivation, researchers will stumble upon a concept or a tool, and they will take that tool and start wondering if that tool is the fix for everything. And I think that we'd be better suited if we could say that, hey, many of these concepts are tools in a toolkit. In some situations, they are the right tool to pull out. In other situations, they are not. Whereas, unfortunately, I think what often happens is there's a tool that's really powerful. It's a good hammer. But suddenly, if someone has the flu, they think that that hammer is going to fix the flu 
when what that hammer was really for is group dynamics. Um, and I think that the publishing industry um, definitely is part of this issue because when a concept explodes, let's take some very popular concepts, grit or specialization or um, body posture, they kind of like fuel this. Well, grit is the answer to everything. Power posing is the answer to everything. Specialization is the answer to everything. And there's this inertia that then perhaps leads those researchers to start overreaching on their science without any male intent. And I think that as a reader of these concepts, I like to think of it as, well, grit in some cases is really important, but in other cases, it's not. Presence and how you hold your body for some people in some cases is really important. In other cases, it's not. I have the luxury of not being an empiricist in a lab needing to do this narrow work. I know it is very hard when you have to publish or perish. I can step back and say, oh, like this, this seems like a concept worth keeping in mind. I have no doubt that how you hold your body impacts your mind because I even write about this in the book. The mind is the body. The body is the mind. I do not know beyond that in what specific circumstances, specific ways of holding your body might affect your consciousness. So I try to focus on these things and think of them as tools in a toolkit, and you can try different tools in different situations. It's a long-winded answer, but I think the issue is when we take a single tool and we start thinking that it's the answer to every problem. Yeah, I like that. It's just a nice way. To, I mean, I think there are two or three things you've said here, right? One is don't get too smitten just by one new wave of science, even if it's very popular and being actively published, correlate that back to other proof points that come more from experience or from cultural wisdom, you know, et cetera. Uh, and then the other is uh, to be a little bit sort of judicious as to the breadth of, you know, relevance of a particular breakthrough or idea, because it may be that it was disco discovered in certain circumstances and it applies to those circumstances, not necessarily, you know, everything, right? And I think those are beautiful ways of creating personal responsibility for each of us as consumers of scientific um, you know, studies as to how we uh, embrace and apply the truths. Uh, very nice. Coming back to your main thesis on groundedness, you have... Uh, Offered up principles, these six principles. Are you open to sharing those just as a kind of like a high level intro to the journey that this book takes? Yes, of course. What are the core principles that you've found? And also, if you want to call it, you know, like how do you define groundedness? So I define groundedness as a sense of inner strength, stability, and wholeness out of which a more joyful, situated striving can emerge. So I want us all, myself included, to more often than not be the mountain climber that is truly where they are, enjoying the journey, performing well, but feeling really good on the way up to that peak. I do not want us to be the mountain climber that is compulsive about reaching the peak, that is so anxious about reaching the peak, that is so worried about reaching the peak. So being grounded along the side of a mountain is really important versus feeling unmoored. And I think that so many people in today's culture feel unmoored. They feel like they are just swept up in this frenetic energy of bright and shiny objects and one thing to the next and restlessness and exhaustion and burnout. And how do I possibly keep up? Um, it can feel like there is no solid ground upon which you're standing. There is no foundation. So groundedness is that foundation. And the six principles that support that foundation are to accept where you are, to get where you want to go, being present to own your energy and attention, being patient to get there faster, embracing vulnerability to build genuine strength and confidence, building deep community, and moving your body to ground your mind. 
And for each of these principles, it's not enough just to know them or to understand them, but then we actually have to do them. So in the book, I call this the knowing doing gap. First, you need to know something and understand its value, but then you actually need to figure out how to do it in the world, how to practice it. And I think that so many books in this genre, perhaps some of my earlier work, can fall short on the doing part. And in this book, I really try to hold every single page of the book to does it close that gap? Am I helping readers not only know something, but am I also helping them be able to take action in the real world to have a positive impact on their life? And what is fascinating, but not surprising about these six principles of groundedness is that they are very much contrary to the the current ethos. So instead of accepting where we are, the current ethos tells us to delude ourselves, to engage in magical, overly optimistic thinking. Uh, If something is challenging, we're supposed to consume our way out of it, or perhaps even worse, numb it with substances. The current ethos is all about constant novelty and stimulation and distraction. It is harder than ever to be present, yet presence is where we find fulfillment and peak performance. We alluded to this earlier. The current ethos is all about speed and hacks and moving fast and breaking things when the research is so clear that patience is actually so key to progress. The current ethos is about invincibility and being tough. And if you're going to be vulnerable, perhaps doing it in an overly performative way, when the truth is that real vulnerability ought to feel hard when you're doing it because it is hard. The fifth principle, build deep community. When we become so obsessed with optimization and efficiency and outward performance in the metaphorical peak of the mountain, what tends to get crowded out first is the time and energy that we could use forging deep bonds and relationships and belonging. Yet the most important thing for our life satisfaction is having those bonds. And then the sixth principle, moving your body to ground your mind, asks, why have we been so caught up in a brain-based model of self where we think that all good ideas and all emotions live in here when in fact, Wisdom, research, and practice shows us that we are mind-body systems, and we cannot think of the brain as disconnected from the body. Yeah, no, thank you. That's a beautiful articulation uh, of these principles. Uh, I'm really grateful as well that you're uh, putting so much effort and thought into the practice of this. In your own work, knowing that you, you know, extend beyond uh, writing books to supporting various performers and uh, business folks in their, in their own journeys, are there some practices that you've seen that uh, have really helped in closing that learning doing gap, uh, you know, effectively for some people where you've actually seen transformation at the end? Oh, of yes, the- many. Which name a principle and we'll, we'll dive into some concrete practices. Yeah, no, I think that, that'll, be, that'll be a good exercise for us to do. I'm thinking, you know, let's maybe, you know, I, I know we can't do all six of them. Let's take this one about embracing vulnerability. It's one where I feel that um, in the recent times in COVID, there has been a need for leaders to step into that zone, yeah. both for themselves, as well as to be a voice for their, uh, for their community, right? Yeah. To create a safe space where people at work can honestly share, reflect and support each other in ways that uh, maybe in the past we had the luxury of not having to do. For at least the masses, you know, a person here, a person there might have had a certain big adversity or issue. But but in this case, we were facing that at a mass level. And yet I found in our own work in training and coaching that uh, it's not uh, at times a natural thing for leaders to show up uh, to 
you know, going to that. Anyway, so uh, I'm so glad you asked about that principle. So the reason is there is just a wonderful human being that I I coached for quite some time. And this person actually, I know, tunes in to your intersections shows. So if they're here, this will really be beautiful. So I'm going to call this person Donna. That's not their real name. And I had started working with them shortly after they were promoted into the C-suite of a mega international global company. And this person was feeling massive imposter syndrome. This person was the first woman at that level in the company at that time, and also the only person of color at that level in the company at that time. And this person didn't have a clear path to being an executive at this multinational Fortune 100 company. Um, They called themselves an accidental executive. So when this person would speak in front of large audiences or in board meetings or with the CEO, at times they would feel imposter syndrome and they would go to this default of performing or trying to come across like they have it all together. And I asked this person, I said, what would you really say? if you could say what you felt in those moments. And my client told me, well, what I'd really say is I'm feeling quite overwhelmed. And some days I wake up and I don't know how I got into this position. And I asked this person, I said, well, why don't you just open up your talks with that? And they said, oh, I can't say that. People might lose confidence. They might not take me seriously. And I took responsibility and I said, I will take responsibility if that happens. I think you'll be surprised. So sure enough, at the next global roadshow of company strategy, this person got on a stage, felt that sense of imposter syndrome, and instead of going into a performance mode, said something closer to what they really felt along the lines of, I'm honored to be here. And wow, is it overwhelming to be an executive at this huge company? This is beyond my wildest dreams. I never thought I'd be here. I need all of your help to make me really strong in this position. And sure enough, this person's shoulders dropped, They felt immensely more comfortable on stage. And in feedback from the audience, they performed better. The audience connected with the person more. Why? Because instead of seeing someone that is unreachable, superhuman, they saw another human being going through a human experience and struggling with imposter syndrome. So the practice there in the book, the way I broaden this out and talk about it is ask yourself what you really want to say and say something as close as possible to that. And I think that the amount of cognitive dissonance and distress that comes from not expressing ourselves authentically is by far greater than any benefit of coming across as having it all together. I even argue in the book that if someone comes across as having all their shit together all the time, that's probably a person to look the opposite direction of because they have no humility. We think imposter syndrome is bad and being overwhelmed by it is no doubt not great, but you ought to have a little bit of imposter syndrome. I have a little bit of imposter syndrome talking to your audience of executives right now. And if we don't, then who like who on earth would truly have everything all figured out? Yeah, it's it's very thought-provoking. It's very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that story. It's uh... You're more confident. That's another thing that happened with this client. And I think that's key. So and, 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 it's, and it's contrarian and paradoxical because we think that if we're feeling vulnerable, that we can't be confident. But I argue in the book that by going to those weak spots and by embracing and addressing those vulnerabilities, we actually become more confident because we're not covering up our cracks. And when we try to repress those things or delude ourselves or pretend that they're not there, intellectually, we might tell a very confident narrative, but deep down inside, we know that we're hiding something. Whereas if we can go to those weak points 
and embrace them or at least know that they're there, then we gain true confidence because we're not hiding anything. We're not hiding anything from ourselves and perhaps we're not hiding anything from others. I'll draw this back to the ancient wisdom as well as to the science. So I'll start with the science. A series of seven studies out of the University of Manningham in Germany. They had individuals like you and I, Hatindra, in conversation. And they instructed one of the two people to be extremely vulnerable. And after the conversation, the vulnerable person was ashamed, embarrassed, didn't feel good, and thought that the person across from them would think the same of them. Yet the person across from them, the receiver of that information, said that they respect the person, that they would trust the person, and that they greatly admire the person. So the more vulnerable we are in the moment, it can feel hard and scary, but it is actually what builds trust and respect with other people. And I, in the book, look at the therapies in the third wave cognitive behavioral therapies, acceptance, commitment therapies, they find the same things with ourselves. So even though it's so hard confronting our own vulnerabilities, when we do so, sometimes with the help of friends, spiritual leaders, therapists, psychiatrists, we become stronger and we become better friends with ourselves. So that's the science. Ancient wisdom. There's an old Greek god named Pan. Pan in these myths lived just outside of the village boundary. And when people got lost and they stumbled upon Pan, they became terrified. So scared that they froze to death and died of fear. Whereas a few brave villagers would knowingly go out to visit Pan. And when they found Pan, Pan would bestow wisdom and strength upon them. And Pan represents our vulnerabilities. If we're scared of them, if we never go there, well, when we stumble upon them, they're going to completely uproot us. Whereas if we can go to them deliberately, again, sometimes with the help of trained professionals and confront them, then we become wiser, we become stronger. In some ways, I think what, what you're sharing with us is, is an invitation to really challenge and re-script our beliefs about our relationship with vulnerability, both a private relationship and a public relationship. And um, you mentioned CBT, for instance, so one of, the, one of the preeminent exponents of it and somebody who's been a really valued mentor for me, you know, Dr. David Burns from Stanford. Um, you know, he, he has this list of uh, you know, self-defeating beliefs. That we tend to uh, fall in the trap of, and I've sometimes, you know, used that in my in my workshops and classes. And I ask people to like pick one that they, you know, particularly feel limited by. Now that they're doing this little bit of a reflection, stepping back from their career and their life, as to like which of these they fall in the trap of, and and one of them is. Superman, superwoman, believe that I got to show up like this. I got to show up like this for my family. I got to show up like this for my team, for for the organization, for the community. Very much in in line with what you're encouraging us to challenge. And it's 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 interesting, actually. In in some ways, you know, the more successful and high performing a group you work with, the more afflicted they are, right? With uh, yeah, with with this self defeating belief. Yeah, I think so. I think that because. When you're deemed conventionally successful, there can be a pressure to perform that role and forget that you're actually still just a human like the rest of us. Yeah. I would like to fuse opposites, though, you know, and see what you think of this, which is just like you were a moment ago sharing a cautionary note about not taking any prescription and assuming it applies in all situations all the time in exactly a very simple way, right? I think my guess is if, you know, correct me if you think I'm, I'm wrong, that, that that might apply to this prescription as well, which is um, there are also moments I've seen where leaders have uh, sought to bring strength to uh, a team more by kind of like doing the opposite. Uh, they're feeling vulnerable from inside, but they're realizing that that's more a private vulnerability that they want to hold on to from within, but on the outside 
outside. They want to be able to help people feel reassured that all will be well. And, you know, Mandela is a great example of that. But he talks about like, I was actually feeling really anxious, but there's no way I was going to show it because I had to give confidence to my, you know, to my people. Yeah, it's a tool. And I say that, right? All of these uh, practices are tools. I think the overarching principle about vulnerability, building strength and confidence is universally true. I think the practices then become tools. So if you know that your company has one month of runway and everything is going to crap, you probably don't want to share it in those terms with the team. I would argue that showing emotion is generally helpful uh, to a point. Something that's happening in the workplace now that's very interesting is so many people are struggling in many different unique ways from COVID-19. And in the name of vulnerability, they're bringing these challenges to the workplace. And I think this is beautiful to a point, because if it goes beyond that point, then the workplace can become like group therapy. But managers aren't trained as therapists. And most organizations, they still have to produce a good or product or service. There has to be some productivity. So all of these things are non-dual. The days of no vulnerability, show up to work, stoic, are out, and that's a good thing. But if work turns into a support group for anxiety or depression, that has all kinds of perils in it. Again, starting with the your managers aren't trained therapists. So these are very non-dual concepts. They're, they're definitely meant to be wrestled with in that way. Yeah, I'm noticing that, uh, you know, time uh, is speeding by in, in, in what is already such a rich discussion. And I'd love to have you maybe uh, double click on one more of these principles to give us uh, you know, a practical sense of uh, its import as well as its practice. And um, yeah. do you have a favorite? I mean, I, yeah, yeah. I think they're all great. I, let's do acceptance. So accept where you are to get where you want to go. All right. So uh, when you are in the midst of a highly charged emotional situation, it is very hard to accept and see clearly what's happening. And the way to do this, perhaps the only way to do this, is what researchers call self-distancing and what ancient wisdom traditions call tapping into your greater awareness or your soul or your loving awareness. And what that means is as follows. So imagine a situation, internal or external. So something that happened in the world or a thought and feeling that you're having. And imagine a deeper sense of self. We tend to fuse with challenging things. And when we fuse with them, we become them. Whereas if we can create a little bit of space between our deeper sense of self and whatever's happening, then we can make a more wise and discerning decision about what to do. So the question becomes, how do you create that space? Two ways that are very practical. One is to pretend that a close friend is in the same situation that you are in. What advice would you give to that friend? And then you actually have to follow that advice. We are much, much, much better at giving advice to friends than ourselves. And that's because when we give advice to friends, it creates that space. The second way to create some distance between a challenging time and your actions are to pretend that you are an older, wiser version of yourself, looking back on your younger self right now. What advice would older, wiser you give to yourself right now? And then you actually have to follow that advice. And I said two ways, I'll give one more. For the more contemplative crowd, this is the value of a meditation or contemplative practice. It helps you learn that thoughts and feelings, they rise, they crest, and then they fall. And the more experience you have watching those thoughts and feelings rise, crest, and fall, the more you realize that you or a sense of identity or self or awareness are separate than those thoughts and feelings. And you get to decide what to do with them. Sometimes you want to fuse with them. When you're launching a company or making love or playing a sport or playing an instrument, 
The greatest flow states are when you fuse with those experiences. But sometimes you want to create some space so that you can have more discernment and degrees of freedom between you and it. So it's not to go about life detached. It's to give yourself the choice. Is this something I want to immediately fuse with? Or is this something that I want to evaluate from a little bit afar? Yeah. I'm glad you picked this one to share. It speaks very closely to my heart. And um, I sometimes wonder that although the conversation you and I have just been having is more about individual potential and how can each of us do what's right for us, if in fact uh, we were able to create a community of practitioners around these ideas, how it might ripple out into a place where many of the challenges we are facing in society today mm-hmm. would actually be almost like naturally addressed and, and uh, resolved because of the inner work that, you know, a large number of people were doing, you know, within themselves, which yeah. again, it's, it's a very spiritual idea that the advancement of humanity, you know, starts from within. Um, you, you mentioned a little bit of that in your book, you know, this intrigue and aspiration you have that groundedness could become a movement. Could you talk a little bit about sort of what connection you see between that inner work and the outer work? Yeah, so right, deep community itself is a principle of groundedness. And part of the reason is that the more that we can engage with other people on anything, the more power that will have on us and then, of course, on on those people around us. And right now, to be grounded is so important. It's why I wrote this book. But it still requires in many cases, going against the, excuse me, going against the cultural grain, swimming upstream. If we can do this in a community way, hopefully we actually shift the culture so that being grounded is more of a default option. And I think that is the value of trying to take these concepts and use them more broadly outside of oneself. And of course, even if they're small communities of practice, a 10-person team, a book club, a synagogue or church or mosque group, it is so much easier to adopt new practices, to wrestle with them, to talk about obstacles when you're doing it with other people than just going it alone. So my goal is that not only do people read this book, but they share it and they have conversations and discussions with other people in their local communities that stem from the book. Uh, that's really, uh, really important. You, you know, you talked there about uh, Ananda and Buddha and, the, you know, friendship being everything. And uh, yeah. <laughs> in some ways, I, I, um, I've been intrigued about, you know, how can we become aware that there is a certain responsibility we owe to the moment, to ourselves, to the other party in how we connect, how we engage, the conversations we have, the frequency on which, you know, we relate to people, um, you know, all of that. And, and I think one thing I hear what you're saying is, hey, you know, we have that social impulse, we are social animals, but what if like some part, if not all of that social connection is used in a very positive and intentional and growth oriented way, right, to create yeah. these communities of practice? Yeah, I think it also involves taking a broader view to your identity and realizing that you, what makes you, you, is also the interactions that you have with other people. So um, it's a line that I, I remember from the book because it's one that like on Twitter and stuff, I, I constantly hear already, which is great because I think it's important. And I wrote that we're all mirrors reflecting on to one another. So our sense of self, we're getting reflected on from others and who we are is shaping who other people are. And again, this is non-dual. Do I think that there is a firm situated sense of self somewhere in there? Absolutely. But that situated sense of self that is firm is very much shaped by everything around. 
So it's not either or, it's both and. And I think the current culture is very focused on the self that's in there that's alone, not the self that is born out of conversation with community and other people. It's almost like a co-creation I'm, I'm hearing from you. Yeah, that's a beautiful way to put it. That is happening. But I love this metaphor of the mirrors. Wonderful. Okay, we're reaching you know, the end of our clock. But I mean, tell me two things, Brad, as we bring this to closure. One is, um, what's the thing that most surprised you about this work and codifying it, putting it out there, uh, supporting people on their own growth journeys? What is the one thing that has most surprised you? And then my last question is going to be, what's the big next platform that you're starting to walk and develop? It could be around the advancement of this work or, or beyond, but I'm just curious to hear where you're, where you're headed next. But let's start with the first one. What, what surprised you the most? So I think that this notion that all truth is paradox in many ways. So one area where it really struck home is we think of self-compassion and self-discipline as opposites, but they're perfect complements. In order to be self-disciplined and take personal responsibility, you have to have self-compassion and realize that some things are structural and you can't control it. And I think that the world has polarized into these two thoughts. One is wake up, pull yourself up by the bootstrap, self-discipline, personal responsibility is everything. The other is everything is a structural problem. Let's all hold hands, sing kumbaya, self-love. And the truth is you need both of those things. And they're both appropriate. And it doesn't matter race, gender, nationality, people that are highly fulfilled, that be well and do well, they are able to close that gap and to have fierce self-discipline, but marry it with fierce self-compassion and fierce self-love. That was really surprising. Hmm. The second question is for what's next. I am trying so hard to practice what I preach and to really just be here and focus on this. Uh I have ideas for what's next, but for now, it's just how can I help get this book into the hands of readers? Because I believe that it's an important work. And how can I be there for readers when they come with questions, either as individuals or in their communities, to really make sure that I am being having integrity for that knowing doing gap? And even if that goes beyond the pages and really helping people implement these practices themselves and in their communities. Thank you for sharing that. How do we bring groundedness, self-confidence, you know, these themes that you have espoused here, how do we bring that to our children? So is this something that is active on your mind as to like uh, your responsibility to help uh, impart? Yeah, I think the best way to do it is to live it. I mean, I have a young son. He's only three and a half. And at that age, they just pick up on everything that you do, that you say, how you're being, are you on your device when you're talking to them? So I think my immediate answer is to start with yourself. And then I think that the second answer would be to to have conversations about these topics in age-appropriate ways. So vulnerability, especially with with young boys and young girls, it's so important to show kids that it's okay to feel and it's okay to be sad at times. It's okay to be really happy and not fostering this sense of um, here's a path and this is how you should walk it, but really trying to be in conversation with kids, again, in an age-appropriate way about the importance of these principles. I love the idea of uh, living, living them as like the most impactful way of, of imparting them. And, and I'm completely in agreement with you. I've been working on my book, as I mentioned, one, one of the stories I've been sharing there is how, how at some point I was just like struggling with what impact did my father have on me? Because I actually often would have a feisty debates and uh, you know, disagree with like prescriptions he would make about how and where I should direct my life versus what I actually did. But, but I intuitively felt like he had like a tremendous impact on me, tremendous positive impact on me. And then I, I realized at some point that there were these subconscious things that I had to really dig out 
which had to do with how he lived his life and uh, mm -hmm. quietly how that was shaping my own sort of journey and um, the inspiration and guidance I was getting from just having a memory of that choice that he made and that moment and how he lived it out and all that. So Brad, you're, you're right on, on the mark there and your son, I'm sure, is going through a extremely rich learning journey here with, uh, with you all in the family. Do the best that I can. <laughs> <laughs> Awesome. Awesome. Thank you so much, Brad, for, for joining us for this journey. It's great to have you back here. And uh, we are your well-wishers and helping cheer and see you get to rising in new heights, both in your own personal journey and in the work that you do for the world. And I look forward very much to both uh, tracking that and having you back on the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. And, and thank you, everybody who has come along um, and listened. And um, I encourage everyone to, to pick up the book to wrestle with the ideas. And I'm serious, I respond to all reader emails. So if you read the book and you have questions or there's obstacles, just go through my website and don't hesitate to, to ask me your questions because I, I really do value the back and forth in, in trying to take what's on the page and help people make it real in the world. Thank you so much, Brad, for, for joining us for this journey.